Here's another inspiring message from Northside Community Church, Sydney. Oh, good morning, everyone. Hello. Uh, so my name's Barry, and I'm the campus pastor at Taramara, and uh, I'm at Sam's preaching up at Taramara today, and I'm preaching here, so we did the swap. But it's good to be here and good to be gather with you. Um, uh, look, I've been praying for you this morning because you have to listen to me. Uh, but I've been praying that God would speak to your heart today. Uh, that's been my prayer, that whatever's going on in your life, that God would have a message uh, for you uh, from whatever preparation I've done, uh, that, that God will speak to your heart and that it will mean something for you uh, in your life today. So that's been my prayer. Um, We've been doing a series called Substitutes. Uh, what we've been doing is exploring some of the things that sometimes we use in our lives that we depend on and maybe we depend on those more than God. It's sort of exploring what's most important in our life. And it's based on this basic idea for all, each and every one of us and that's this, that every one of us worships something or someone in our life as our ultimate the ultimate thing, the big thing in our life. Every one of us worships someone or something. And the, the reason for this is um, we are all created to worship. We're made to worship. Just as, just as birds are made to fly and rivers are made to flow, people are made to worship. And we all worship something. Um, what does it mean to worship? Worship means to give value to, to give allegiance to, to surrender to serve, to hold tightly, to value. That's what worship is. Uh, there's other, other meanings, you know, in one of the definitions of worship, it means the word kiss. In, in other words, it's something that's very intimate, very close, it's something that you value, you would value it so much, you would kiss. And so uh, Bob Dylan said this, sing that song, you know, you're going to serve somebody and we launched our series with a bit of that, you know, we, all of us are going to serve somebody and, uh, and, and, and we all worship and look to something to give our lives ultimate meaning, satisfaction, purpose, significance in life. And so there's uh, one of my favourite singers, um, bands, is U2. I love listening to a bit of U2 music and Bono sings that song, you know, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Others of you might like Bruce Springsteen who uh, many years ago sang that song, Everybody's Got a Hungry Heart. An Australian researcher, Hugh McKay, said this. He said this, that um, Australians, while they, our attachment to a traditional view of God may be waning, our desire for a life of meaning remains as strong as ever. Isn't that interesting that this social researcher uh, makes that point? You know, as a child, I went to Sunday school, I went along to church, but, um, you know, I, I actually worshipped something bigger than, well, something in my heart that was bigger than God uh, in my own life. So I, I watched a bit of tennis and I used to stay up late at night and watch the Wimbledon and French Open and, and I started to play tennis and I really enjoyed the game of tennis. And in fact, something got a hold of my heart that I wanted to be a great tennis player, not just a, 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 a tennis player, I wanted to be a famous tennis player. I didn't want to be sitting in the lounge room watching tennis. I wanted to be on the other side of the screen. I wanted to be the guy that plays in Wimbledon and wins the game. 
um, when I was 10 years old, a local radio station um, invited people to ring up and have a chat to them. So as a 10-year-old boy, I rang up and I said, Hi, my name's Barry and I'm a tennis star. I didn't know the difference between the words star and fan. <laughs> I was a fan of tennis, but in my heart, I actually wanted to be a tennis star. You see, I worshipped, as a little boy, I worshipped fame. I wanted to be famous. And then when, as a, when I was a teenager, I, I uh, wanted to be rich. I thought, I want to make lots and lots of money. And so I had a plan, a life plan. I had it all worked out. I would go to, go to university, study business do a business degree, become an accountant, make lots of money, help people make lots of money, buy a business, sell a business, buy a business, sell a business, and eventually I would have truckloads of cash. I had my life all planned out. And then at the age of 18, God revealed to me, Barry, that's a very self-centered, selfish dream that doesn't really help people. And I was confronted by the reality of my own selfishness and my desire to be really, really rich. And so one of the things I worshipped as a teenager was cash, wealth. I worshipped it. I valued it more than God until God had to show up in my life and reveal to me, Barry, that's all selfish. It's not, not my plan uh, for your life. I want to ask the question today, what is it that could be your something? What is maybe the something or the someone that is the ultimate uh, for you? Blaise Pascal, the famous mathematician, uh, said this in the 1600s. He says, There's a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each person which cannot be satisfied by any created thing, but only by God the Creator through a faith in Jesus Christ. Now, two years ago, a friend of mine shared a video with me and uh, I just wanted to share it with you today. This video, I think, in some ways sums up this series. It's um, a little bit of a parable, it's a bit of a story about what this series has been all about and I want to introduce you to the two people in this video, Justin and Angela and I hope that you enjoy it and that you just try and watch and see what might God be saying to you through this little parable. That castle really? is phenomenal. And so they taught you how to fold the napkins? Yes. Oh wow, I actually, believe it or not, I know how to sew the uh, Sydney Opera House. I don't believe you. No, no, I really do. I, I, I can totally show you. Hang Stop. On, I'm sorry. I am very excited. Good evening. Oh, good evening. Have you um, dined, dined with us before? Yes, actually. This is our favorite restaurant. Welcome back. Oh, no, babe, I'm pretty sure we've never been here before. No. That's weird. Really? Yeah, no. No, we haven't. <laughs> oh, hold that thought just one second. I'm oh, really, yeah, no, really sure. sorry. Oh, no problem. Yeah. So what would you like to order this Oh, uh, Yes, sir. So you know what? I think I would like to have that salmon. That, that sounds absolutely wonderful. Yeah. That's one of my favorites. Oh, great. Yeah, you like that. And for you, ma'am? Oh, um, I will have the filet mignon and the New York strip and the eight-ounce sirloin, all medium rare, please. Yes, fantastic. That is a great choice. <laughs> Thank you. I will get those right out to you. Babe, that's, that's kind of a lot of food, isn't it? <laughs> I'm not just ordering for one, you know. Wait, are you? Are you telling me that we're... Are we expecting? Yeah, he'll be here soon. It's a boy? Oh my... Yeah, of Oh my gosh, course. babe, okay, uh, this has got to be... There he is the... now. Wait. Hi. What? Oh, bonjour. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm late. 
I ordered for you. Oh, thank you. You know me so well. <laughs> uh, uh, I'm sorry. Do you do, do you two know each other? Do you yeah, guys... he is my boyfriend from high school. Your your boyfriend from from high school. Babe, can I ask you what your old boyfriend's doing? <laughs> uh, did I come at a bad time? No. Yeah. I really don't see the problem here, Justin. Yeah, I really don't see the problem here. Okay, who are you? Honey, stop, you're embarrassing me. I just wanted us to have one nice night at our favorite restaurant. Okay, first of all, I've never been to this restaurant. And, and second, what is going on? Hey, babe, sorry I'm late. Did I miss anything? Okay, seriously? Hey, you, uh, you, you take your hand off her and you, what is going on? Just sit down. It's all right. It's all right. It's all right. Angela, is this, is this some kind of joke? Are you, are you actually seeing these guys? Justin, I've known these guys longer than I've known you. Wait, what? Are you seriously jealous right now? Jealous? Angela, in case you forgot, we're married. Okay, and we spend the majority of our time together. I'm, I love you more than any of my other boyfriends. That's why you'll always be my favorite. Your, your favorite? Is, is there anyone else I need to know about? Babe, is there a problem over here? Okay, really, the waiter? No, Dennis, we're All fine. right, seriously, no. Good, food will be right now. Uh, okay, uh, Angela, Angela, all right. These guys need to go, and we need to talk. We're done. I cannot believe this. You are being so selfish. Why do you always have to make everything about you? You ruined our favorite restaurant. Excuse me, I'm sorry. Yeah, I've still never been to this restaurant. Thank you, thank you, Dennis. The salmon is delightful. So, did you propose to her here too? Okay. So, uh, how you going with that? A um, couple of things with this video. It's a, it's a story, it's a parable, but Angela, whether we realize it or not, Angela actually represents us. Angela represents us. She represents people of the world. She actually represents individual Christians, the church. Justin actually represents Jesus. And uh, one of the things that Angela says is, Angela says at the end there, uh, a couple of things. She says, um, you'll always be my favourite. And, you know, he asked the question, what, what, are all these, what are all these other people doing here? You know, and, and one of the things about Angela is she brings with her into this relationship all the other things and relationships she's had. And um, did, did you notice that Justin, he got pretty, he got pretty annoyed. He, he, he was actually jealous. 
And this is the kind of jealousy that Jesus has for his bride, for the church, for us. He loves us so passionately that he wants us to love him back with passion. There is an exclusivity about our relationship with Jesus. He's not saying, Jesus is not saying you can't have any other relationships, but he is saying that he is to be our God, our ultimate, our number one, and that all the other things that we might see as our other little gods need to not be in the picture. That's the parable. That's the parable of that little story uh, and what it means. And so we might laugh at Angela a bit, <laughs> but, but the truth is we can be just like Angela in our relationships. I want to share some scriptures today. And the first one I want to share is Exodus chapter 20, verse 3 and 5. And uh, this is God saying to the people after he's rescued them out of Egypt, he rescues them and then he gives them the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments are there as a response for us to God's love and grace. And here's the first one. He says, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Now, when you think of jealousy, we sometimes think of children with toys and being jealous with one another about their toys. Or teenagers being jealous about, oh, this girl likes this boy, but some other girl's talking to him and she gets jealous of that going on. Or sometimes even as adults, we might get jealous because we want the car that that person has, or we want the house that that person has, or we want the business or the job or whatever. And so jealousy is something, but there's a good jealousy. And the good jealousy is that God is passionate for us. He loves us and he's passionate for us and he wants us to value him as number one, as the ultimate in our own lives because God knows best and he knows that all the other things that we value, all the other kinds of things that we might try and bring into our relationship with him, he knows that those things won't satisfy. God is the one who gives us purpose and satisfaction, significance, salvation. He gives us so much. And so what I want to do, I just want to give you a little list and I asked the question earlier, now, the fact is, you might be saying, Barry, hang on a minute, I'm actually in church today. Why are you asking me this question? Why are you asking me what is my ultimate? Because at least I got to church at 10 or 10.010 or whatever it is. At least, I'm, at least I'm in the room today, Barry. And, you know, look, I'm very aware that some of you, this is, you know, your gathering together for what is a key part of your relationship with God. And I'm aware that some of you here this morning and some of you watching online, you're wondering what this faith thing's about. And you're maybe exploring what, what does it mean to know God and what does it mean to have a faith in God. And, and some of us have come from all different kinds of backgrounds to be here in the room this morning. But I want to just share with you some of the things that we as people often go to in order to find significance and satisfaction and, um, and, and, and salvation and security. These are some of them and let me just list them out and I want to ask as I list them out, could any of these be maybe your ultimate? Let me list them. Achievement, addiction, approval, alcohol, career, some sort of drug, Entertainment, family, fame, fortune, money, your partner, pleasure, politics, popularity, pornography, position, power, relationships, reputation, sex, sport, spouse, 
Success, self-righteousness, title, wealth, work, maybe even religion. Now, all of those things, not all of those things are bad things in and of themselves, but some of them are actually quite good things. But I want to invite you to go a little bit deeper today and ask the question, could it be that any one of those things that I've just listed are for you your ultimate? The very one thing that you would, could not live life without. So today we're going to look at two stories from the Bible and I want to share these. I think these are two stories that help us understand uh, what God is on about for us. The first one is this. One day Jesus was uh, with thousands of people. Uh, he was at a religious festival. The festival had gone on for days and days and at the end of the festival, this is what happens. Jesus gets up. This is in John chapter 7. In John chapter 7, on the last day of the great, the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood up and he said in a loud voice, it's interesting when Jesus, when Jesus taught, he would often sit down to teach. This is often what Jesus, he would, he would often be seated. But on this is, this is the one sort of big occasion where Jesus, he stands up and, he, and Jesus would often talk quietly, but Jesus stood up and addresses the crowd in a loud voice. So you get this idea that Jesus is actually booming this out. He's, he's shouting it out. He wants the whole crowd to hear what he's got to say. And so Jesus says this. He said, whoever believes, he, he says, where am I? The greatest day of the feast. He says, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. And then he goes on, he talks about the Holy Spirit. This living water is the living water of God himself. God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, dwelling in us, living in us and giving to us not just biological life, but spiritual life, vital life, where we know that we don't not just have spiritual life, but we also have eternal life. This is what God desires for each of us to be living, to have the living water flowing in us, for us to have spiritual life and life to the full. If we go back a few chapters in John chapter 4, we come across this scene where, where what's happening is Jesus has a bunch of disciples and Jesus' disciples are baptizing more people than John the Baptist's disciples. So you've got Jesus' Jesus' disciples are baptizing a heap more than John. And the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, they're watching on and they're seeing all these baptisms happen. And they're actually, they were pretty annoyed with John the Baptist. They were pretty jealous that John the Baptist was getting all these people following. And then you even get more annoyed when they see that Jesus' disciples are baptizing more disciples. And so they're really, really jealous in a bad way. And so they decide to try and hunt Jesus down. And Jesus knows that this is what they're about to do. So what Jesus does is he goes back to Galilee, but he goes a different way. He goes through, uh, sorry, he left Judea and he went back to Galilee and he goes through an area called Samaria. He goes to this town called Sychar and, uh, and, and this town uh, is where Jacob's well is. And at this special place, Jesus goes. And Jesus was tired it's about midday. The disciples uh, have been baptizing lots of people. They haven't had a break. They're tired. They're hungry. Jesus sends them into the town of Sychar. And just outside the town of Sychar, there's this well. And Jesus sits down at this well. 
And then a woman comes along. And this uh, woman, uh, she's a Samaritan. And she comes to this well and, uh, to get some water. And for those of us that don't know, Jews and Samaritans didn't get along with each other. There's, there was a history uh, that they had. I won't go into that today. But they had this history and the Samaritans and the Jews didn't get along so well. The Jews looked down upon the Samaritans and uh, Samaritans didn't feel like that they were very valued. They, didn't, uh, th- they thought they were right. Jews thought they were right in where worship happened. And it was a really interesting story. But this Samaritan woman comes to get some water from the well. And what Jesus does is fascinating. Jesus breaks down the barriers between the Jews and the Samaritans by firstly talking with her. Jesus talks with her. Now, Jews and Samaritans didn't talk. And so they, 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 Jesus talks to her. And in talking to her as a, as a teacher, as a religious teacher, which Jesus was, and for this woman who's a Samaritan, a Samaritan is generally someone of a mixed race. And in those days, that was looked frowned upon. It was horrible, frowned upon. And Jesus breaks down the barriers and he communicates with her. He chats with her. And he actually, in talking with her, treats her with dignity and respect. This is something that this woman probably hasn't really ever experienced in her life. Jesus treats her with dignity and respect. And he asks the question, Jesus asks her, will you give me a drink? Now, for some people today, we'd go, oh, Jesus is a real sexist pig because he's asking a woman for a drink. No, no, no. Jesus is actually treating her with dignity and respect by inviting her to help serve him. That was actually a sign of his acceptance of her, that he would invite someone like her to give him, a spiritual teacher and leader, a drink. It was a sign of respect. And so uh, they chat for a minute about God and water that satisfies. And then Jesus says this. Let's have a look at what Jesus tells her. John 4, verse 13 and 14. He says, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water that I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up in them to eternal life. And what Jesus is revealing here is Jesus is helping this woman see that he is the ultimate. That Jesus is the source of spiritual life and that Jesus is the source of eternal life. That Jesus is where it's all at. He's the one. He's the ultimate. He is the source for anyone to have a spiritual life that is good for this life and for the next, for eternal life. Jesus is it. Now, the woman uh, whose life is really quite empty um, asks Jesus a question. Could you please give me this water? And Jesus um, says to her, could you just go and call your husband? And she says, I don't have one. And Jesus says, that's true. You don't have a husband. In fact, you got married and divorced. You got married and divorced again. You got married again and you got divorced again. You got married again and divorced again. You got married again and divorced again. Five times you've been married and divorced. And there's a man that you're now living with who's not your husband. That's true, isn't it? Jesus says to her. And she goes, oh, I've only just met. 
And Jesus knows everything about her. And even though Jesus knows everything about her, the good, the bad and the ugly, this woman who is really morally bankrupt, she's poor, morally bankrupt, she has had a tough... Now, I'm not saying anyone who's experienced marriage and divorce is, mar- is morally bankrupt. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying when you look at this track record of this woman, you can see that there's something going on in her life, that she's looking for something else and treating something else as her ultimate. And Jesus can see right through her. So I've got a question for each of us today. A question I want you to think about. What is it that this woman worships? What did this woman worship you can call it out if you want to maybe maybe she worshiped relationships maybe she thought that the source of her satisfaction would come in a relationship with a bloke maybe she worshiped men we don't know maybe after the second third or fourth time she thought oh gee i don't know if i like these guys because i'm getting getting you know mucked around here maybe there was something else that she worshiped and it was causing all of this marital disharmony in her life. I don't know what was going on for her, but we know that ultimately she didn't worship God and and she was looking for satisfaction in something else. But she can see after this chat with Jesus that there's something different, more different about Jesus. And so after a brief debate, they have a little debate about worship. Should worship be indoors or outdoors? Should worship be... Uh, in the city or in the country? Um, should we worship with others or privately? You know, she asks all the questions that people have been asking for a long, long time. And Jesus helps her see that he accepts her, he loves her, he talks to her, and he says something to her that we cannot miss. This is so, so important. Let's have a look at what Jesus says. Verse 23 and 24, Jesus says, Yet a time is coming... And has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshippers that the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshippers must worship him in spirit and in truth. I love this because Jesus actually here is saying that there are different kinds of worshippers. Different kinds. Jesus says there are different kinds of worshippers. And what Jesus is saying very clearly is that he wants people to worship him with, in spirit and in truth. What does that mean? Well, it means with passion and prayer. It means with your heart and your head. It means that worship is to be from, from here and here. It means that it's based on, on, on the truth of who God is, that he is spirit. And, and it also means that we as worshippers must worship him in spirit, with passion from our hearts to his heart. And it's based on who God is, that worship is to be something that is real and genuine, not fake or fraud. It needs to be from our heart, needs to be real, authentic. To give worth to God from our heart needs to be genuine. And so uh, what happens? The woman said to Jesus, I know that the Messiah called Christ is coming. And when he comes, he's going to explain everything to us. And then Jesus declared, I love this. I just love this. This is so cool. Jesus says, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. I love this. This is one of the most precious verses in the Bible. 
Because here we have Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the God of all gods, who's come to us as a human being, a Jew, talking with this woman who's a Samaritan, a woman of mixed race, a woman who was despised and rejected by the society and by at least five men. Jesus reveals to her and says, guess what? I am the promised one. The Messiah is the anointed one, the promised one. What it means is Jesus is the one that the whole of the world has been looking for at that, up, up to that point. He is the one in whom there is salvation and satisfaction and significance and security. And all the things that our world longs for, it's all in Jesus. And Jesus shows great grace to this woman that he would reveal to her and says, guess what? I'm the guy. I'm the guy. I am the one who is the source of spiritual life and eternal life. And for you, I'm the one. I love the grace of Jesus in this verse. I love that he reveals to this woman who he is. And Jesus tells her that out of everyone else, he tells her he's the one. And so I want to share this main point. This is the main point today. Jesus is the ultimate. He's the one worthy of our worship. And what happens with this woman? Guess what? She goes into the town of Sychar and tells all of her friends, I don't know how many she's got, but she tells the whole village, could this be the one? Could this be? And she goes into that town with great joy. And I want to compare that story. You've heard that story about that woman, but there's another story that I want to share today that's really important. There was this guy in the Bible who was a lot like the guy that I wanted to become. You know how I said I wanted to be famous earlier on? And you know that when I was a teenager, I said I wanted to be really rich? Well, this guy had both. This guy had both. This guy is known as the rich young ruler. He, had, um, he was rich. He was young. If there was a, a Forbes 500 rich list... Of young guys, he'd be probably top of the list. If there was a magazine put out about who the rich, who you know, who, who the top rich people are, he'd be on it. And say, so, uh, this guy had position, he had possessions, he had power. He was materially rich, but he was also morally rich. Very unlike this woman, who was perhaps morally poor and materially poor. And we know that something was missing in his life because he wasn't secure. So let's have a look at this story, Luke 18. We're just going to have a look at this briefly. Luke 18, 18 to 21, it says this. A certain ruler asked Jesus, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus said. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. And then what happens is Jesus starts to list some of the commandments and you can hear, you can almost hear this guy ticking off in his head his checklist of morality, of how good a guy he is. He, he, he almost, you, you can just hear it in his head. He ticks off how good he is uh, in his moral checklist. So here's what Jesus says to him. Here's the commandments. Are you ready for some of them? These are the ones about how we relate to each other. Uh, two sections to the good commandments, to the Ten Commandments. There's, there's four or five that relate to how we relate to God and the other six relate to how do we relate to one another. And here's the first one. Jesus says, um, uh, you shall not commit adultery. 
In other words, keep yourself pure for marriage and keep yourself pure in marriage uh, is what that commandment's about. And guess what? This guy says, tick, done. Been there, done. Jesus gives the next commandment. Uh, you shall not murder. In other words, don't kill people. He goes, tick, not a murderer. Um, you shall not steal. Tick. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not tell lies about others. Tick. Uh, you, 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 you will honour your father and mother. You will respect them and you will honour them. Tick. He says, all these I've kept since I was a boy. In other words, he's saying, been there, done that, bought the T-shirt. I'm all good, Jesus. And he's declaring to Jesus, I'm a good bloke. I'm rich materially. I'm rich morally. I'm all good. But he knew that there was something missing because he asked the question, Jesus, how do I have eternal life? What can I do to earn eternal life? And Jesus looked right into the heart of this man. And uh, he's, you know, Mark actually says this, that Jesus looked at him. Mark, the gospel in Mark's gospel, Jesus looked at him and loved him. Jesus has great compassion for this man. And here's what it says in Luke, Luke 18. It says, when Jesus heard this, he said to this man, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and then come follow me. You see, what's happening in this story is Jesus and this man are having this discussion and Jesus is looking right into the heart of this guy and he sees what it is that he worships. What does he worship? What does this man worship? This man worships the thing that I worshipped when I was a teenage boy. Wealth. Money. Riches. That's what he worshipped. The thing that was most important in his life, the thing that was his ultimate, the thing that was this guy's God was wealth. And when Jesus told him that he needed to basically dethrone wealth by giving it away, which is what would happen, and follow Jesus, watch what happens. We're about to read a verse that it is probably one of the most challenging verses in the Bible in the sense that we don't think this makes sense. Let's have a look at it. It says, When the man heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Now, what's strange about that verse? He was sad because he was wealthy. That's what's strange. You see, there is a bit of an illusion in our society today, and the illusion is that if you become wealthy, you'll be happy. There's this illusion around that if you become wealthy, you'll be happy. And this verse shows us very clearly that you can be wealthy and yet sad. And so I want to just share quickly three, uh, three truths about wealth. The first one is this. Wealth does not satisfy. Now, it's helpful, but it doesn't satisfy. In the year 2006, Princeton University did a research study that showed and revealed this, that the belief that high income is associated with good mood is widespread, but mostly illusory. 
Isn't that interesting? I went to Tijuana, Mexico uh, in my late 20s and uh, worked uh, serving on a mission trip to um, help these people with their houses. Some of their houses were no bigger than this part of the stage. A mum and dad and four kids living in a, in, a, in, a, in a room, a big room, that was not much bigger than this part of the stage. And we, uh, you know, we young people from Sydney came to them on a mission trip. And guess what they taught us? Joy. They were poor as anything, but they had a joy that was, that was beyond what wealth could buy. Here's a, here's a second truth about, uh, about wealth. Wealth does not make you significant. You see, our net worth is not our real worth. Our worth is not determined by a dollar sign. Our worth is determined by the cross. The cross shows us what we're worth and how significant we are, that the God of the universe would love us enough that he would leave heaven and come to us and die for us. That's our worth. That's our worth. We're loved by Jesus. Here's a third one about wealth. Wealth will not save you. The rich young ruler came to Jesus because he realized that there was something missing in his life and he tried to earn eternal life. He'd been used to earning all his money and he thought, well, if I can earn money, I can earn eternal life. And Jesus says, no, you, you can't earn eternal life. Eternal life is a gift, but what it means is for you, mate, you have to dethrone your little G God and you need to give it away. And Jesus tells the man to surrender in order to follow Jesus. Now, what's all this about? Does this mean that Jesus wants every single one of us to sell all our possessions? Because by the way, each and every one of us in this room, whether you realize it or not, we're all wealthy. Every one of us. Compared to world standards, we're wealthy. If you've got food in the fridge, clothes on your back, a place to sleep at night, we are amongst some of the world's most wealthy people. And as for me as a young guy wanting to be um, a, a, a rich person and a wealthy person, one of the things that God confronted me about uh, as a younger teenager is this. I need to give stuff away. I need to give what I earn away. Not all of it. But there's this principle in the Bible called tithing. And this is a principle where you give God the first tenth of everything you earn. So you, you, you earn wages, you give God the first tenth. You, you sell a house and make a profit, you give God the tenth of the profit. You're in business and somehow you work out, well, what do you give God? A tenth of your gross profit or your net profit? I've got some articles about that to help you work that out. But... Um, here's how you deal with, if, if for you, I don't know, but I believe there'd be people watching online because, and people in this room, I believe that there are people here today who potentially your ultimate is wealth, riches, money. And I want to share with you personally how I've dealt with that in my own life. Give it away. Give it away. That's, that's the only way. The antidote to materialism is giving it away. And so how do I do it? I give a tenth, at least a tenth of my income to Jesus through the local church. I tithe. And on top of that, when there's other opportunities, I will give above that of my own 
earnings in offerings, and my wife and I do this, to the local church or to a mission or to this or that, this opportunity. And so what that does in my heart, it dethrones the idol, the substitute. It dethrones it so that God truly is my God. I follow what God wants, not what I want in this area of my life. Does that make sense? It's the only way. And I want to invite you today. There are many of you watching online and there are many of you in this room today. I want to invite you to let God be God. Let him be your provider. As we sang, that he is enough. He is the ultimate. And so I want to ask a question. This is a continual question before we share in communion. And that is this. Are you surrendering to Jesus as your ultimate? Are you? Not did you? Not did you as a kid, did you make a commitment to Jesus? I'm asking the continuous question. Are you letting Jesus be your ultimate? Letting him be your number one in everything? Because ultimately, Jesus is the only one that can satisfy. And Jesus, as I said earlier, he left heaven. He came to us. He, he, he taught us how to live. He valued every person, children and young people and oldies and people of all different age groups. Jesus valued men and women and sick people and lame people and rich and poor. And he showed that each and every one of us is significant. And he loved us so much that he valued us so much that he lay down his life. And on the cross, what he did while he's on the cross, he became our ultimate substitute. Because we've put all these other things above God, Jesus showed us that God himself puts us, values us, loves us enough, and puts us above his own comfort. God left the comfort and coziness of heaven to be cruelly crucified on a cross. For you. That's how much he loves you. And then he rose from the dead and he's alive now. And he is worth living for because nothing else satisfies. And all the other things, the created things that we value, aren't worth valuing. They're important. But in the video with Justin and Angela, don't bring them with you. Have a relationship with Jesus. Surrender to Him. Well, thanks for tuning in. If you'd like to find out more about Northside, visit northsidechurch.org.au.